G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you as always, and and especially good to be with you for today's topic, which is a, a fascinating topic, and we've called today's episode Leveraging Our Levels of Energy. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a, a bit of a brief overview? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, as we can imagine and all relate to, our energy levels are a finite resource. It's not as if we're going to have energy all the way through the day. So that means how we manage our energy is going to make a difference to not just our productivity, but also our well-being. And what can really help our energy management is being aware of our own individual patterns of how our energy varies throughout the day. Like we know that when we engage in physical exercise, that's one way that we can increase our energy. Certainly if we're physically well, we're going to have more energy. But with any given energy level, it will still vary through the day. And the more we understand that about our own reactions, that helps our quality of life. Well, I think it's a fascinating point, Dad, and, and this whole idea of time management versus energy management, like I remember when I first came across that, like it was, it was almost a bit of a profound idea because maybe particularly at school and, and there is re- this real idea about time management and the importance of time management. And I do think that you can manage your time as well as you want, but at the same time, if, for example, it costs you all your energy to manage your time and you're in a situation where you're not feeling productive when you've got allotted time for work and all this sort of stuff, well, that's maybe not the best way forward. So I'm very interested to get into this with you today because I think it is a really good way of looking at things in terms of energy management versus time management. Yes, just having that awareness of our own reactions because just say if we had to perform a really important task... And let's say, well, I'm going to schedule that for between four o'clock and six o'clock this afternoon. Well, what if that's when your energy levels are fairly low? That's not going to be very productive for an exercise where you have to really apply your focus and your thinking and all the rest of it. So in that example, it might go better to schedule it mid-morning. But for someone else, it might be different because some of us have our peak energy maybe in the morning Others, it might be the afternoon. Some others, again, it might be the evening. It's being aware of these individual differences so we can find our own patterns and use them to best effect. And some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, it comes from a book called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink. Uh, and it's a brilliant book. It's one that I know you've been reading over the last little while, Dad. And, and it's one that I actually read, uh, read a couple of years ago and, and got a great deal out of. For exactly that reason that I was talking about before, I remember having days where I was working from home, for example, and you'd almost be so, uh, I suppose, nervous in some ways or anxious about getting the most out of the day in terms of the time that you'd actually find yourself, I suppose, exhausting yourself a little bit or or maybe not necessarily using your energy the most efficiently by trying to keep to this kind of arbitrary schedule, which I found didn't necessarily fit the best for me. Yes, and it is partly about what expectations we have and having realistic expectations because there have been a number of times in previous podcasts through the pandemic where we've talked about giving ourselves a bit of a break, not expecting ourselves to have the same level of productivity as usual. If we did, we could just feel helpless and frustrated. Well, in a way, taking the same principle, if we expect ourselves to be very productive at times of day where we tend to have our lowest energy levels, similarly, we'd end up feeling frustrated, 
helpless, so we might as well play to our strengths and also what's realistic. And I think that's one of the things that I really got out of, of reading that book at that time, Dad, is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put my hand up and I, I would not necessarily consider myself a morning person in many ways. You know, I really enjoy getting up sort of early in the morning, but in terms of, I suppose, being on the ball and feel like I'm firing on all cylinders, it, it's not really until sort of, you know, the mid-morning, I've maybe had a coffee or two and, and sort of got into the day when I really feel like I'm, I'm, you know, up and about, so to speak. And I suppose in some ways that book, gave permission a little bit and one of the things that that will be fascinating to talk about maybe at the end of today's podcast is a few examples of some famous people and maybe their daily routines and and how they relate to these ideas a little bit because I think uh, one of the main things to take from this is that there's no right or wrong answer it's not worth being prescriptive with some of this sort of stuff but it's worth finding what works best for us and we're all going to have our own individual recipe And I suppose the more that we can have a sense of that, then as you say, the better we can be productive, enjoy what we're doing and and overall contribute to our well-being. Yes, and as we talk about this further, we'll talk about how our own patterns can change over time too because I can remember when I was first a university student in my early 20s, I remember doing a fair bit of my thesis at night Even around 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the morning, I'd be doing statistics, evaluation and research, listening to the Pink Floyd album, Animals. And I just loved that. There was no one else around. It's like there was no one else on earth. There were no interruptions. And and I associate that time with this wonderful nostalgic memory of doing that. Well, I couldn't dream of doing that now, trying to be productive in the early hours of the morning like that. Now I much prefer to work, for example, from late morning. Oh, well, it's good to know, Dad, that, uh, that that was a similar experience that you had because I must admit I was exactly the same in terms of when I was at university, oh, someone would probably head up to the library at sometimes, you know, 6 or 7 o'clock at night and, and sort of stay there till about 4 or 5 in the morning when you'd, you know, done a, a full day's work but at night sort of thing and can't say I had the, the Pink Floyd going but it's, uh, it's good to know that, uh, oh, I must admit, I reckon... Dave Gilmore and Roger Waters would have, uh, it was probably some of the most wholesome Pink Floyd listening that happened back in the day. And I should say with the statistical analysis, of course, it worked a lot better without drugs. So that was certainly <laughs> drug-free, that kind of uh, time in the evening. Oh, well, it's good to know that, uh, that someone back in the day uh, enjoyed Pink Floyd in, uh, in a little more wholesome way, Dad. But, uh, but we'll move on because uh, one of the things that I enjoyed looking into this topic this week was to recognise that, for example, our cortisol levels are higher in the morning so when I I don't necessarily feel like I'm ready to go in the morning there's maybe a bit of a a physiological reason for that and I suppose part of that relates to this idea of how we have peaks troughs and recoveries throughout the day so this is something that Daniel Pink speaks about in when do you want to just give us a a bit of an idea of what these uh, these peaks troughs and recoveries are and, and how they look within our day yes now they're the three stages in a common repeating cycle. So naturally our peak will be when we have higher energy levels, we can focus a little bit easier, we can do more analytical tasks if you like, like our thinking, our analytical, logical thinking is most focused. Whereas a trough, as we can understand, lower energy levels. We would find it harder to concentrate, certainly more difficult doing analytical kind of activity. We'd feel more like taking a break. But then also there's a later time when there's a recovery. So if people have their peak in the morning, for example, they might have a lull in the early afternoon 
and then later in the evening, then some rise in energy levels and focus and things like that. And so I would use as an example, in terms of a trough, if I'm driving around quarter to four in the afternoon, I'll feel like falling asleep. Whereas if I'm driving back from Melbourne to Geelong, for example, around six o'clock in the evening, it's later, you'd think you might be more tired, but I'll be more alert then than I am at quarter to four. If we know these kind of repeating patterns, then we can focus our time when we're going to have the greater productivity and we can take time out and rest when we're more likely to be sleepy or tired or not able to concentrate as well. Well, I think that's so true. And, and one that I really relate to is that idea of 3.30-itis, you know, you talk similar time to when you're talking about being in the car, but I often giggle a little bit around that time because I'm always someone, you know, I'll go for a coffee around 3.30 and, you know, if, you, if I'm in the office, Dad, it's so funny because there's often two or three people hovering around the coffee machine around that similar time and we all have a bit of a joke about, oh, 3.30-itis today, how's your day going, all this sort of stuff. But it's interesting that it does fall at that time. But I'm interested in what you said about how people can experience, I suppose, those peaks and troughs at, at different times throughout the day. Because obviously, you know, 3.30 seems to be a, a pretty common one, maybe between lunch and dinner, and, and maybe we're, we've processed our food and all that sort of stuff, and we're maybe a little bit more sluggish. But I wonder if you can maybe talk about what some of those differences are, because there's a, a few different types of people in terms of the way they experience the day, isn't there? Yes, and the technical term that we would use is chronotypes. People who, for example, have more energy earlier in the morning, others will be later in the day. And naturally, if people have their energy, their higher energy levels early in the morning, we would tend to call them larks. So a lark will get up early, wake up and get up early, feeling energised through the day, but wear out more in the evening. Whereas if someone's an owl... They'll tend to wake up later, get up later, and they'll be more peaking, more like the early afternoon or the evening. And I'd often heard in the past of larks or owls, but actually most people are somewhere in between. You could say about two-thirds of people are more likely to be somewhere between those times. The third birds, and there's a particular way of working it out. It's almost like this little simple mathematical formula. Think about when you wake up, on a day when you're free to get up whenever you prefer. So it might be on a weekend, for example, or on a holiday or something like that. When do you tend to get to sleep? And when do you tend to wake up on your free days? So you don't have to get up for school or work, your free days. Now, if your midpoint of sleep is 3.30 in the morning or earlier, you're probably a lark. So that might be if you, for example, you got to sleep about 10 o'clock and you got up about 6 in the morning, then that midpoint would be 2 a.m. So you're clearly a lark by that measure. But if you often went to sleep around 2 o'clock in the morning, say on a holiday or on a weekend, and got up about 10 o'clock, the midpoint would be, say, 6 a.m. That's after 5.30 a.m., so you're probably an owl. So you look at the midpoint when you get to sleep, when you wake up on those free days, before 3.30, more a lark, after 5.30, more an owl, somewhere in between, you're probably a third bird. 
And that is interesting that, yeah, about two-thirds of people apparently are in that somewhere-in-between mode. And, and I wonder if part of being in that somewhere-in-between mode is, is maybe you oscillate a little bit between. Maybe sometimes I'm a little bit more of an owl. Sometimes I'm a little bit more of a lark. Or I certainly know when I was at university, I was, I was maybe more of an owl. Now I probably try to be a bit more of a lark and, and probably somewhere in between that, but, uh, but certainly try and be a bit more of a, a lark. But, uh, but another way that I heard, which is a nice little simple way that I think it was in Daniel Pink's book as well, and, and that is a, a good accurate way, I think, Dad, that you mentioned there, is looking at the midpoint of what we sleep. But I believe Daniel Pink almost described it simply as like when you are on those free days, whether it be a weekend or a day off, if you wake up at about the same time as you'd wake up on a weekday, it's likely that you're a lark. If you wake up a little bit later, you don't necessarily have anything to get up for, but you know you don't necessarily want to just sleep in all day, it's likely that you're a third bird. Whereas if it's you know 90 minutes or later more, well, it's likely that you've been up doing something the night previous, and so you're, you're going to sleep in, therefore it's likely that you're an owl. But I wonder if that is something that changes over time. Yes, and by my own example... In early adult life, I think I was more a third bird with a bit of owl in me, if you like. But then, over a period of time, I'd now be more of a lark. For example, I'd often be asleep by 10 or 10.30. I tend to be waking up by 6 o'clock in the morning. Clearly more of a lark. So many people 60 years of age and older are going to tend to be more like larks. And teenagers are going to tend to be more like owls, so to speak. Also, younger children tend to be more like larks. And what I found, actually, as a, as a young adult parent, when children tend to get up early, you might be more of a third bird, but your lifestyle might veer more towards a lark lifestyle if you're a parent of young children. But the way of looking at your chronotype is when you would tend to get to sleep and wake up when it's on your free days, what you would tend to do. So sometimes we might have to adapt in some ways and not be able to live our easiest pattern, so to speak, and that's fair enough to adapt, like our work might require us to get up early or people might have to work late shifts or something like that. So clearly we can adapt it, but it's recognising when we can act with our chronotype, there's going to be an advantage. When we're acting against our chronotype, there'll be a little bit extra cost. So again, even more important to look at our ways of managing our energy levels. Well, that is so interesting when you're looking at something like the context of school. If, for example, people are going to be around the age of 12 years old and maybe tend to be a little bit more of an owl, well, I know I've heard some people make the argument that school should be a little bit later in the day. And that, I suppose, would suggest that there would be some benefit to that. Yes. And they've even found that from research. And a number of educators or people who work with teenagers have advocated that schools can start a little bit later. And there's a problem, for example, in many schools in America where often the average starting time is about 8 o'clock in the morning. That's not so good for teenagers. And they found that if they made it just one hour later, then those teenagers would tend to do better in subjects like maths, maybe about 3% better just by having a later start in the day. So again, that's an example that if we can schedule tasks or manage our demands, so it's around the time that we're most focused and our energy levels are best, there's going to be an advantage to that. Well, I think it's something that potentially people got a little bit more of a sense of in the pandemic, Dad, because it's something that you hear a little bit spoken about in terms of since the pandemic is that idea of the great resignation 
And the idea that our careers are likely to change a lot and even the structure of our workday is likely to change a lot. And I wonder if part of that is in recognition of the fact that maybe the way that things were set up, it was maybe set up for a particular type of person, but it wasn't necessarily set up for everyone. If you're someone who does like to work between, for example, six o'clock at night and midnight, well, potentially there's a lot of jobs that wouldn't allow for that. But I suppose what I do then wonder is how can we, I suppose, leverage our chronotype for our benefit? Obviously, I imagine moving our schedule around is one thing, but what are some ways that we can look to do that? Well, one of the main things is how much autonomy we have, how much choice we have in structuring our day. Now, when we have a fair bit of autonomy, it might be students writing essays or it might be someone running their own business or someone writing, for example, writing a book or articles or things like that. If we've got the day where we can schedule our own time, part of it then is optimising that fit between when we're going to be most focused and recognising what part of the day it's worthwhile scheduling our breaks or more breaks. So if you know you're a lark, it's really worth getting going on assignments, for example, in the morning and look to maximise that peak focus, that peak attention time. That's when our cortisol levels will tend to be higher that can help focus. So you maximise that time. And if you're, for example, an owl, even though many people might prefer to work nine to five, or we might think of a nine to five workday, well, if you've got scope to schedule in sessions and productive sessions of work later in the day, whether it be with writing or, or working on any task that requires concentration and energy and focus, then it's worth scheduling productive sessions later in the day. But just say if we don't have that scope to adjust our time around our chronotype, and many people will be working something like a nine to five pattern. If you know you're more productive in the morning or have that focus then more, well, planning your more demanding tasks at times when you're likely to be most focused and especially, say, analytical tasks in the morning. Whereas if someone knows that their very productive time, it's different from others, but it tends to be later in the day, then allowing yourself to have that focus and scheduling that productive time when suits, for some it might be after three o'clock, for example. But the thing is being honest with yourself about your patterns and whatever you do, as Daniel Pink would say, whatever you do, don't let mundane tasks Creep into your peak period. Don't fritter away that time when you have the main focus and energy because you don't get that time back. Whereas if you've focused on that time productively, you've already got, say, three, two, three productive hours of work done. You might have done more in those two or three hours than if you tried to do the same work in four or five hours in your less productive time. So recognising your pattern, scheduling the optimal times, that align with your peak concentration. And we'll talk shortly about building in breaks. But one contrast to using our time productively is if you're looking, say, at a creative task. Sometimes we can work well creatively when we're not necessarily as intensely focused. We might be sifting between different ideas or whatever. That creative time for a lark can work quite well in the afternoon. And so when we're in more of a trough, we can still be productive, but using more creative time that way. So I think particularly capitalising on our problem solving and high concentration times and scheduling other less demanding tasks or sometimes even creative tasks 
or reflecting on things to the trough. Well, I am really interested to talk with you more about that idea of of scheduling in breaks because I know it is something that does give great benefit and we will expand on that a little bit more. But one of the things that I found fascinating about this is I suppose the degree to which it's not common knowledge in some ways and look that there's going to be plenty of situations where look we can't change our circumstances in terms of what we need to be doing at certain times there's just going to be for example some jobs that are time based and we have to be doing them at a certain time we, we just can't necessarily get around that we will chat about breaks in a moment because I wonder if breaks are one way that can help with that but one thing that I found so interesting looking at some of this sort of stuff is is you might even have some more examples of this as well, but, but the idea that, for example, judges are more likely to grant parole in the morning than in the afternoon. And I believe police officers are more likely to have a traffic accident in the afternoon than in the morning. And so it seems to me that even, I suppose, the most, for lack of a better term, kind of esteemed or the most in some ways celebrated or or these people in our society who we look at with a great deal of respect and and you know in many ways defer to them for a whole range of things well even these patterns appear in their behaviors as well so it seems that it's almost like no one's immune from this sort of stuff exactly all of us are going to have a trough we'll have our peak we'll have the trough then we'll have recovery that will apply to all of us and it's recognising that pattern. So yes, as you say, even if people are conscientious, if they're tired and hungry, they're not going to perform as well. Hence judges probably being more cranky just before lunch or around that time too before they've eaten as well as maybe being more tired. But other examples, yes, in hospital settings, just say medical procedures there are more likely to be mistakes in the afternoon than in the morning. In fact, with medical procedures, there's three times the likelihood in, say, the early mid-afternoon there'll be mistakes compared to in the morning. Same with something like hand washing. Now, hospital staff are going to be conscientious, but if you actually measure levels of hand washing, there was more than a third less hand washing taking place in the afternoon by caregivers by caregiving staff. So it just shows people can be more complacent in that way. And also another example is school children will tend to do worse on tests in the afternoon. But there's a difference with these things. You can counter some of that, if you like, fall off in functioning if people have a break beforehand. So if school children have, say, a 20, 30-minute break, they can actually do slightly better on tasks just after a break, even if it's in the afternoon. And the same thing with judges. If they have a break, they're less likely to have this more punitive attitude of not giving parolers readily. And also, in terms of mistakes, less likely to have mistakes if we build in breaks. So this is part of the idea. It's not just accepting that our day is divided into a few different parts. Even within that, there's the importance of recognising What is our focus? What is our concentration? What are we noticing about our energy levels and lunch, hunger, even that? If we manage our energy levels in that way, including building in breaks, we can counter some of that drop-off in functioning. And one of the things that we'll chat about in just a moment is the idea of old tradian rhythms. I must admit, I've mainly heard of circadian rhythms, Dad, and I think that's relevant here. So we'll have a chat about that in a moment. But I was really interested in what you said before about even conscientious people will find themselves feeling tired and all this sort of stuff. And, and I almost wonder if there's a degree to which conscientious people will 
tire themselves out in a way in terms of they won't want to recognise that they're in a period of trough. They're going to think, oh, just let's keep doing, let's work hard the whole time. Potentially they're not going to take breaks uh, and they're going to find themselves, you know, tiring themselves out even furthermore again. And I suppose one uh, example that really comes to mind there is when I was uh, in a past life, Dad, when I was working at an electorate office in, uh, in politics and it was, it was during an election campaign and so things were very, very busy. And one of the things I remember from that time is that every morning at, at about 10.30, one of the gents in the office would say, everyone come in, we're having a coffee, everyone's sitting down for 10 minutes together, drop what you're doing, there is nothing too important to miss basically this uh, little morning tea that we're going to have together now and sometimes people were on the phones and all <laughs> there were certain things that I did miss it for but it was quite strict in terms of the way that it was enforced everyone had to be there at 10 30 for a coffee and the one or two times that I found that I missed out on that geez I noticed it particularly around sort of you know that time 3 4 o'clock later in the day you find your mind wandering you're not as sharp and as you said before, talking about, you know, if we, if we take a break, we can still get as much done. That's very much the sense that I had at that stage was that, you know, if we didn't have that break, well, you know, we might do an hour and 20s worth of work in two hours. And so we're actually losing out by stretching over that 40 minutes more than we were by taking out that 10 minutes to keep us really sharp. Yes, well, I suppose what we're talking about now is it's important to be disciplined, not merely conscientious like trying to work hard if we're going to be too perfectionistic and pushing ourselves through even though we're losing focus we're tired we're not concentrating well but not taking a break that might be conscientious but it's not very disciplined and it's not very effective it's not very efficient actually our performance will decrease we'll likely make more mistakes we won't enjoy as much well-being it'll be more frustrating because the highest performers, the most effective people in any area where there are demands involved tend to be efficient at taking breaks. This is one of the key characteristics that differentiates high performers to people who are less efficient and productive. It's the patterns of taking breaks. Because when people are most productive, they realise it is about energy management and energy and willpower is a finite resource, but we can replenish ourselves with breaks. The other thing that conscientious people might do is allowing for when there's a lull, might build in a little bit more of a system to try and have fewer mistakes. And some hospitals did this. They said, we know there's a lull, say, between two and four in the afternoon. Okay, before we engage in this surgery, all the staff meet together, the theatre staff, now we step back from the hospital bed. Now let's talk through what our specific role is and what the steps we're going to take. And they might then more planfully run through the procedures they're going to apply and then step forward and on with the work. In other words, there'll be little rituals that people will do. So that also means that if we're going to work at times when our concentration might be lesser, then building in little cues or rituals or steps to help see that we're on track. In other words, we factor in that our concentration is fallible, our energy levels are finite, and that's a way of helping reduce mistakes as well, along with taking breaks. Well, I'm fascinated by that idea about successful people and, and being planful with their breaks because it's something I suppose that's come up on the, the last few episodes of this podcast is, is the idea of planfulness. 
And that's where it'd be great to chat in a little while about some of these real world examples of these successful people and, and how they, I suppose, think about their routine because that was one of the things that really came across is just how intentional they were with their routine. But what I wonder before we do chat about that, Dad, is how do we get the most out of a break? Because I remember from the fortifying our focus episode a couple of weeks ago, like what comes to mind for me is you could be, for example, writing away, then the phone rings and you have a 10-minute conversation with someone else, well, technically that's a 10-minute break from writing, but we might be, I suppose, getting stuck in terms of the cognitive switching effect. We might break our momentum for writing. So what is a good way to, I suppose, plan a break? How do we get the most out of a break? Yes, well, one thing you're talking about there is the setting itself too. So it could be a study setting or an office setting or our work environment, looking to be free of distractions. So we're regulating our own time rather than responding to phone notifications or unwanted interruptions. So that's one aspect of it. Then another thing is looking at our own patterns. How long do we tend to go before our concentration will wander? And for many of us, we could take a brief break at least about every hour. That would be an example. Now, if people are really firing along and working very effectively for an hour and a half, well, good luck to you. That's just fine and all the rest of it. But there was one study that actually mapped people's productivity and it was able to record digitally, it was timed, how people were working and it was found that the highest performers on this particular task would work for about 52 minutes and then take a break for about 17 minutes. So yeah, just under an hour, then about a 15-minute break. Funnily enough, I'm reminded by how we work as therapists in our practice. We would tend to have a therapy session of just under an hour. It might be something like 52, 55 minutes. And then with booking sessions an hour and a quarter apart, that gives 15 minutes in between including taking time out for whatever we might be doing at the time. And sometimes that can be an actual break of just leaving any work apart. It doesn't have to be writing a letter or something like that. It could be having a brief chat with a work colleague. And there are things that can enhance our breaks like that. There can be a social break. If we interact with a work colleague, we'll tend to get a little bit more benefit at times than a solitary break. Or a physical exercise break. Walking around the block might be a short block. Even if people go for a five-minute walk, like say in an hour, and break up the hour with a five-minute walk, that can improve people's concentration and mood through a day. Also, we can have a break outside rather than inside. Now, a walk might involve that, of course, but being amongst nature, such as people might have a bench in a garden outside or just go out and look at the sky. But yes, yeah, certainly a walk, seeing trees around, that can help. And as you can imagine, what we've talked about recently, the problem of screen time or disruption from digital media, having a tech-free break, being free of screens from a break can help as well. And I think there's so much out there these days to help with some of this sort of stuff in terms of, you know, someone who's, you know, interested in, in business and, and follow a lot of sort of entrepreneurs online and all this sort of stuff. You know, you come across so many little tips and strategies to, I suppose, help enforce some of this sort of stuff. Like one that comes to mind really there is that, I think they call it the Pomodoro method. And they have these little tomato sort of shaped timers that go for about, I believe it's 40 minutes. And the idea is you have sort of 40 minutes on and five minutes off. 
And, you know, people are structured, as you say, very disciplined with the way that they do that and seem to get great benefit of it. I must admit, having the, uh, the timer there is not necessarily something that, that I've done, Dad. But, like, for example, one thing that I've found really good, and again, you know, did this fair bit at uni and stuff, but, like, I played guitar a little bit and, you know, not very well at all. But, but I found guitar is a perfect little break from something because although you're certainly not necessarily getting outside, but it just takes your mind completely off something for, again, about five minutes minutes or so and you can either play through a song or if you're learning something new play it for enough time to get frustrated and want to go back to what you were doing in the first place but that's all I find just if you can find something that does I suppose take you out of your cognitive environment completely uh, because being in the same room it can be hard to do that but if you can add in something like you know even if it's maybe listening to a bit of a song or, or yeah if you can just really change it up in terms of your cognitive environment that's what I find to be the great benefit. Yes, they're good examples and funnily enough, yes, I used to play guitar as well as a student to have a little bit of a break and as you say, you can do it for five or ten minutes and that works and so remiss not to mention another particularly valuable break, something like a kind of meditative or relaxation kind of break, just taking five minutes, slowing your breathing. Breathing rhythmically, slowly, for a few minutes, maybe closing your eyes, that can be a very restorative break. And I remember one study many years ago looked at just that. It took business executives and said, okay, what we're going to do is do this experiment. We're going to build in a five-minute relaxation break each hour and see how that goes. And a number of people objected. They said, wait a minute, we're too busy to take five minutes off every hour. That's going to interfere with our workflow and all the rest of it. But they actually experimented with it. And they found that the time that people took for the break, so say that something like 35, 40 minutes through a day, was more than compensated for, like they picked up at least, say, an hour in efficiency. They realised they ended up ahead by doing that. So it's not a matter that the more minutes or hours we spend on tasks, the more we'll get done. It is partly about energy management, focus management, concentration management. And if we push through those times when we're waning... And if we expect ourselves to be productive in a trough, we probably will end up achieving less, being more frustrated, lower well-being than if we take these strategic breaks. And I suppose where that was really illustrated recently, like it's, it's a little bit different because it's talking over a bigger time frame, but I believe it was Microsoft have trialled going to a four-day work week. And I think they've done a similar thing in Denmark. And I believe they've got more productive <laughs> over the time, over the output of a week. And I suppose what that suggests is that, again, like it is a little bit different talking about, say, a four-day week versus a five-day week. But what it really suggests to me is that it's not necessarily intuitive in terms of it's not as if we all just have, you know, unlimited energy pools that we can just, it's just simply a matter of allocating time towards something. Like that really does get to the idea of, I suppose, energy management Verse time management and it seems to me that a really big part of that is being planful with our breaks yes so one way or another when we're working on the main tasks they're the times when we can apply ourselves optimally and funnily enough that's got as much to do with taking breaks as it does looking to work very hard on a particular task and Dad, now before we get into some real world examples, which I'm excited to chat to you about, but uh, before we get there, I suppose I just have a quick question about, for example, naps. Because as someone who's, who's not a psychologist, who's not psychologically trained, 
geez, you hear a, a whole lot of information about whether naps are good or whether, for example, they make you feel a little bit too groggy or, yeah, I've heard a range of things in terms of whether they're a benefit or, or, or not so much a benefit they can potentially take away from your sleep at night and all this sort of stuff. So wonder if we could just clarify how naps can fit in and, and maybe fit in as a beneficial break and not necessarily make us feel too groggy and all that sort of stuff. Yes, well, when it comes to naps, we can say that the evidence is in about the benefit that they can give, and especially as people age, but people can benefit from naps of a range of ages. It's even more obvious when people are older. It's now known that when people take more regular naps, that can improve people's cognitive functioning. And I might highlight at first that one of the main reasons why people might have been hesitant to take naps is what you were saying earlier on about people being concerned about feeling groggy because a number of people might have experimented, had a nap, woke up afterwards, felt groggy, felt it took them a while to get back into things and part of the problem was taking a nap for too long. The optimal time for a nap for a break tends to be around 10 to 20 minutes. For 10 to 20 minutes, people get the restorative benefit, but if people are napping for more than, say, about 40 minutes or certainly an hour, then people are going to tend to wake up feeling a bit groggy, and so the benefits might be lesser because of that disruption. But certainly now when it comes to naps, the evidence is in about them being beneficial. And these are some examples. Apparently, police officers who took naps before an afternoon shift had about 48% fewer traffic accidents, as Daniel Pink described in that book, When. And in another study with NASA pilots, they found that if they had a nap, afterwards they showed a 34% improvement in reaction time and they doubled their level of alertness. But if we look at it more generally, well, naps have been shown to improve memory, our problem-solving ability improves the immune system. In one Greek study, they found that people were less likely to die from heart disease if they had regular naps. So regular napping confers a benefit. And if people feel guilty, I've been lazy or I shouldn't do that, or if people don't have naps because they think that's a bit lazy or slack or whatever, it might be worth revising that opinion. But looking to get the best return from those naps by making it about 10 to 20 minutes and maybe planning a little bit, scheduling it in the day, because a number of people will find they'll get more benefit from a nap or more readily be able to nap at a particular time of day. Well, that is interesting. I suppose what comes to mind for me there is, like I remember hearing recently that before the days of the electric lamp, for example, well, people would go to bed a lot earlier in, in the day because it would get darker a lot earlier and they'd have candles as light. So it was a bit more of a, a requirement of resources to keep the lights on and all this sort of thing. So I suppose our our patterns of sleep in terms of going to bed a bit later and waking up early in the morning after having that one period of sleep, I believe they used to, you know, get up and and uh, make themselves acquainted with their partner in the evening was a bit of a tradition back in the day. But the way that we do things now is is quite a new way of doing things. So it is interesting to look at that and to, I suppose, recognise that, yeah, like certainly, you know, in the days before electricity, like naps were much more readily accepted thing or a much more regular thing and obviously there's societies around the world like in in Spain they have their siesta and so yes it's good to I suppose have a bit of permission dad to have a bit of a nap sometimes. Yes and one extra tip around napping you mentioned earlier about ultradian rhythms now what does this mean? 
Now, we know about circadian rhythms, and that's that daily rhythm, which is partly about having that peak and the trough and the recovery at stages of the day. But also through the day, there are what we call ultradian rhythms. Every 90 minutes or so, there'll be a relative peak or energy. And then again, 45 minutes after the peak, so around every 90 minutes, there'll be a lull or a little bit of a trough in energy. So like a mini peak and a mini trough. Now, this varies through the whole day. And one thing this means is if you wake up during the night, you're probably waking up at around a little bit of a peak, so a little bit more alertness. And if you wake up then, it might be about another 30, 45 minutes before you get a wave of sleepiness, these ultradian rhythms. So it's worth not being too frustrated with yourself. If you don't go back to sleep straight away, you might need to wait for another lull. But how can we use this during the day? One is recognising we'll get some of these troughs during the day and that can be a good time to take a nap. For example, if someone knows they get a trough around about 3.30, the 3.30-itis or quarter to four or something like that, you can plan in a nap at that time, certainly on a free day. And I find sometimes if I'm at home, I might put on one side of an LP, lie on a couch and just allow myself to drift off while the music is there. And that's about the right time for something like that 20-minute nap. And the thing about the benefit of a nap is it also applies even if you've had a full sleep that night. And people might think, oh, look, I won't get off to sleep though or have a nap if I've already had a full sleep that night. Well, if you recognise that little trough that goes with the ultradian rhythm, the little bit of a lull, you're more likely to drift off even if you've had a good sleep that night. But apart from that, just allowing yourself a period of time to rest, even if you don't fall off to sleep, that could be very beneficial just to have a period of rest for that 15 or 20 minutes. Well, I like that idea of recognising the, the trough in the afternoon and, and maybe having a little bit of a nap around that, Dad, because I'll tell you what, it is my favourite thing to do on Christmas Day. When you've just stuffed yourself full of food and it's been a bit of a joke in our family, there is that idea of who's going to be the first one on Christmas to get off to sleep after filling the gob full of food and, and I'll tell you what, it's a great way to spend Christmas Day but oh, there's a big old trough that comes when you've eaten as much turkey as we usually do on a Christmas dad. Yes, and I can remember being the first one to drift off a few times myself <laughs> or I learnt later that I was the first one to drift off at least. Yeah, certainly I haven't got there yet, but uh, certainly certainly I've got my eyes on the prize for that one. But Dad, let's get into some examples now of how this plays out, because I suppose one of the most famous nappers in in some stage, and it's a great example to get into, because he would, I think, go as far as to say that you only need a two-second nap to get the benefit from it, and that's Salvador Dali, and I believe actually Albert Einstein used a, a similar method to this, where as he was painting at night, I believe Salvador Dali was a bit of an owl and would be in his workshop at night time, that sort of thing, he would position himself over a metal plate holding a key, and so as he would fall, drift off to sleep, uh, he would drop the key onto the plate, and he would basically say that the time that the key took to fall from his hand clatter onto the plate and wake him up was enough time for, for him to basically have had his nap 
and be revivified is the word that he used. But I believe Salvador Dali also used to use that, I suppose, stage of sleep, almost being half in and out of sleep for, for creativity as well. So he was such a night owl dad that uh, he even came up with a little system to, to stop him being able to get off to sleep in the first place. Yes, a brilliantly creative idea. And whereas it might have just been a moment for the key to fall and then hit that plate, well, I imagine he was probably sitting in the chair for just a little while beforehand to get to that stage of actually falling asleep. And that shows that some of the benefit that people get, it's not necessarily from the time they're actually fully asleep, but in the lead up to that as well. So even rest can be helpful. I suppose one of the things that that highlights as well, Dad, is that potentially there's there's a little bit more creativity that comes in at times that aren't necessarily our peak moment. It might be our sort of peak for logic and analysis, but we might have times throughout the day that we're a little bit more creative. And and one person who I believe subscribed to that method was was Mozart. Again, he seems to be a little bit of a, a night owl type character, Mozart. But in a letter that he wrote in, in 1782, he talked about his daily routine. And he says, at six o'clock in the morning, I have my hair dressed and have finished my toilet by seven o'clock, which is uh, it's quite a regimented routine he had, Mozart, Dad. But uh, then he says, at seven, I write till nine. From nine to one, I give lessons. And he, he goes and has lunch. And then he goes on to say, uh, talking about his own writing later in the day, I cannot begin to work before five or six o'clock in the evening. And I'm often prevented from doing so by some concert. Otherwise, I write till nine. When I cannot rely on my evening writing, it is my custom to write for a time before I go to bed. I often sit up writing till one and rise again at six. So clearly, talking about uh, Mozart's routine, Daddy did a lot of his work at night, which is very interesting. Yes, and a very interesting pattern as well because he had that, well, early morning writing as well, like, say, 7 o'clock, but then he could come back to it again late at night, again, reflecting he had a, a peak at one stage, later on a recovery, and then a trough in the middle of the days. He said he couldn't work before 5 o'clock. So, yes, very much those three different stages, those patterns. And I find it so interesting the way that he said, I cannot begin to work before five or six o'clock in the evening. Like, like this is Mozart. Like, he's, he's literally the Mozart of music. And, uh, and he's saying, I, I cannot work. Like, his idea of not being able to work must be very different from our idea of not being able to work. Yes, he might have all the genius in the world, but it just shows that if he's not channeling his energy or focus at the optimal time, well, again... Energy is a finite resource. He realised he didn't have it available at that time of day. And I find it so interesting, Dad, to contrast that with someone, for example, like Jeff Bezos of Amazon, the founder of Amazon. He talks about his routine and he says, I get up early, I go to bed early. I like to putter in the morning, so I like to read the newspaper, I like to have coffee, I like to have breakfast with my kids before they go to school. So I have my kind of puttering time, it's very important to me. I like to do my high IQ meetings before lunch. Like anything that's going to be really mentally challenging, that's a 10 o'clock meeting. Because by 5 o'clock, I'm like, I can't think about that today. Let's try this again tomorrow at 10 a.m. So again, like, like Bezos is a multi-billionaire. Like he'd be absolutely fine if he was to do it at 9 or if he was to do it at 6. But he just has such an idea of what works for him and he's really regimented with that. Yes, it's that idea of efficiency and productivity, isn't it? The most productive people are going to tend to be quite disciplined about how they manage their time through the day, depending on their chronotype. 
Well, certainly. And talk about productive people. Like you've got, for example, Mark Wahlberg goes to bed at 7.30 at night, wakes up at 2.30 in the morning, and he does his main work often from 11 in the morning to 1 and then has some lunch and then from 2 till 3. So clearly Mark Wahlberg is a bit of a lark. But, but then if we look, for example, Dad, at Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, for example, would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. He would get up and ask himself, what good shall I do this day? He would work from 8 o'clock till 11 o'clock. Then he'd read or look over his accounts for a couple of hours. I'm sure he'd have lunch in that time too. Then he'd work for another four hours. So again, not necessarily the same as the others. Like That's one of the things that really strikes me about this as well is that they're very disciplined and regimented, these famous people, with their daily routines. But it's not as if there's even really a common theme between them apart from the fact that they all have their own. Yes, and one thing I was interested to hear from you earlier, I know you mentioned to me about Eminem, the musician. Now, I assume that he might do a lot of writing of music late at night and all the rest of it, but you described that he had a routine where he worked strictly between nine and five, even though many other people would be working with maybe less structure, many musicians would. So I thought, that's interesting. Again, it shows that someone with this great talent, but he really managed his energy and his focus well. Absolutely. I think it was actually, it was an interview with, I think it was Akon, who, who, another rapper who did a song with Eminem and he basically said, oh, we agreed on the date to do it. And, you know, I rocked into the studio at about five o'clock when I usually would. And he was walking out and he said, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow, nine o'clock, man. And Akon was be like, oh, look, where are you going? I'm here to work. He said, oh, no, no, I'm finished. I've, I've been here since nine o'clock. I'm doing my eight hours and oh, I've done my eight hours. And, and apparently, yeah, he, he was so regimented in the way that he did. He said, you know, obviously it's my, my passion, it's my life, all this sort of stuff, but I want to spend time with my family and, and he had other priorities that he obviously wanted to make time for and again, like obviously he probably didn't come across as the most disciplined person earlier in his career, but he really does have that, I suppose, clear idea of what his chronotype must be and what works best for him. Yes, and when you think of these examples, it makes you reflect on your own patterns and one of the things that it reinforces for me is not wasting that time, being careful about that time when you like to be most productive if you are engaged in a task that's important to you. And the other thing is being prepared to fit in breaks. And part of that may be including a nap if you're able to. Well, I think that's that's such a good point, Dad. And, and the other thing that I really take from that as well is that, look, obviously we're going to have our peaks and troughs throughout the day, but it's not as if every peak is going to get to a certain point. And it's not as if every trough is going to get to a certain point as well. And like, for example, if I look at Maya Angelou, the the famous poet and author, she said, I try to get there. This is talking about where she, where she writes. Uh, She says, I try to get there around seven o'clock in the morning and I work until two o'clock in the afternoon. If the work is going badly, I stay until 1230. If it's going well, I'll stay as long as it's going well. It's lonely and it's marvellous. And what I really like about that too is that she recognises that, hey, look, I have my peak in the morning, for example. I'm going to be there every day from 7 o'clock till 12.30, but I'm not going to put the pressure on to stay there all day. And if it's not going well, well, that's absolutely fine. I'll come back the next day. But it's like she has her minimum. And when it's going well, there, there might be days where she is really in a peak that's a bit of an extended peak for a, a longer period of time for whatever reason. Well, then she's able to leverage that. But it's also recognising that, well, actually, there's some days that, 
you know, this isn't necessarily going to be the most efficient use of my time if I stay here and, and potentially I'm going to, you know, maybe build in some resentment towards the, the task itself and it's just not necessarily going to be the best thing to, I suppose, push through this time when I am in a trough. So, yeah, Maya Angelou is someone who really had a great sense of that, it seemed. Yes, and when you talk about that, it reminds me of the theme of flow we talked about recently. If you're flowing or in a state of flow, yes, keep on going. But if it's not working for you, you're trying to do some creative task and it's not working, yeah, maybe having a break or taking the pressure off. And that does remind me of some of the themes that came up with the pandemic. Being fair on ourselves, we did have extra challenges to our focus and our attention it was maybe harder at times to get into a state of flow but maybe just as our world is getting back a little bit more to normal like many people are in more regular patterns at school people are back at school people's work routines are maybe a little bit more ordered these days maybe that's a good time where we've got a little bit more scope to make a few tweaks or notice what our patterns might be and help establish some of the patterns that most suit us Certainly, and and yeah, absolutely. I think that is that is really something to be taken from today. It's, you know, we can look at so many people who have been successful, and you know, they're going to have their own recipe, but that's not necessarily going to work for us. And you know, if there is anything that, that I do take for it, it's well, it's just that really these people that we've spoken about do have their own recipe, and whatever that looks like, and it's not necessarily going to be something that I suppose fits at all times. There might be a little bit of refining that needs to go on over a bit of time, and then. It might not necessarily be as appropriate for you as we go a little bit further way down the road. But from everything that we've spoken about today, it really just does suggest to me that having any recipe and and being as planful as possible and having as much understanding as we can develop about our own uh, rhythms and and our own, uh, whether we're an owl or a lark and uh, and what works best for us, then, well, that's going to give us the greatest benefit for our productivity, but there's so many more benefits that come from that as well. Yes, and we certainly appreciate, again, Daniel Pink's contribution with the book When that we've drawn from very heavily today about chronotypes. And actually, there's so many interesting things in that book about timing, including the significance of beginnings and endings and how things go in the middle of different phases that we're at. And so we might revisit some of these themes about timing for our next podcast. Absolutely, Dad. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. And I know we've got one coming up on a, on a midlife crisis in a couple of episodes' time. So I might have to broaden it out to a quarter-life crisis because I reckon that's a thing recently where this, we're going down a whole different rabbit hole now. But we'll have to save it for a couple of weeks' time. But thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. As you say, thank you to Daniel Pink. We'll put all of the resources up for today's episode on our podcast page at sykespeels.com.au. Uh, And there will be a few resources. For example, I know Daniel Pink's stuff, he's absolutely brilliant. He's so generous with the amount of free material he puts out there. And and I suppose just one final one for me. Look, I I won't put it up on the podcast page because it's it's pretty risque. But uh, if you want to know the ultimate night owl, look up Hunter S. Thompson, the the famous author and, and gonzo journalist. Look up his daily routine because I'll tell you what, it is... It blew me away a little bit in terms of the degree to which he is a night owl viewer. To take the middle point of his sleep, it would be quite confronting. Yes, I'm not sure if he listened to Pink Floyd, but if he did, I'm sure he (laughs) didn't do it sober. 